This is the record that God has given to us, eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. He who believes on him is not condemned, but he who believeth not is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing is able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of him and through him and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study of the word this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, you have revealed yourself to us in your word. Scripture says that it is in your light that we see light. It is only in the light of your word that we come to understand truth about our lives, truth about the creation around us, truth about how to live uh, as redeemed, justified, uh, regenerate human beings. Father, we thank you for all that you've given us in your word, and we pray that as we study it, we might come to understand more fully its value for us, that this is not just simply something we do once a week. It's not just something that is uh, occasional in our life, not just something we do because we're Christians and uh, we do this or this is what our family uh, reared us to do, but this is This is because it's valuable. It is more important than anything else in life. It has value, as we've studied, beyond refined gold, beyond rubies, beyond diamonds, beyond anything that we can imagine, that life comes from our study of Scripture. And so, Father, we pray that we might be challenged this morning and that we might respond to that challenge by pushing forward in our own spiritual life and spiritual growth. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 8, verse 22. Romans chapter 8, verse 22. It struck me this week as I'm watching the news and some of the things that uh, continue to come out as revelations about uh, our uh, government We come to learn that there have been numerous scandals, numerous illegal activities uh, conducted against people in this country because of their political beliefs and because of some of their religious beliefs. We also have come to understand that in the uh, guise of security that there has been continual and egregious uh, invasions of individual privacy so that the freedom that we have often talked about and believe that we have is becoming more and more uh, illusory. In fact, it is perhaps a thing of the past. There have been many who have warned about this over the past uh, 15 or 20 years, and it is indeed a frightful thing. But it is not something that we as believers should be too overwhelmed by because we know that we are living in the devil's world. 
and that the trend in the devil's world is towards uh, darkness. It's away from freedom. It is always in the direction of tyranny, for that is the basic orientation of the human heart and the sin nature is to tyrannize, not to give freedom. We have lived for uh, 300 years in this country, in this continent, uh, benefiting from the tremendous impact of the scriptural studies and the scriptural orientation of the early colonists and the founding fathers, whether they were actual believers or not may be uh, in question. But the fact is that they, they were taught and they were educated and their ethics and their value system came out of a framework that was heavily influenced by a Judeo-Christian understanding of the law and of absolutes. But as we go forward and further away from that heritage, there's fewer and fewer things that we can count on. We can't even count anymore on the rule of law. I read uh, a comment this morning by someone who I'm not <clears throat> a fan of in any way, shape, or form. Sometimes you have you find yourself quoting people you really don't align yourself with at all. But I saw a quote from uh, Julian Assange this morning, who's the WikiLeaks founder, where he said that what we're witnessing right now is the total collapse of the rule of law in the United States. And and that that is true. We're witnessing not only that collapse here in the United States, but we're witnessing it in Western Europe and around the world. Because we have, we live in a time period where the zeitgeist, the spirit of the age is pure relativism. This is not anything new, but it is new in our experience, especially in the United States. And we're reaping the consequences of about a 150 year slide into moral relativism. So that nobody really understands absolutes anymore, neither can they live on the basis of absolutes, so that everything becomes relative. Uh, numerous reports coming out about uh, the uh, infiltration of Sharia law into the courts of uh, Germany, England, other nations in, uh, in, in Europe. Once again, it's the same thing. We've lost sight of what the absolutes are. This won't get any better. But we do have hope as believers. There's one place where there are eternal truths that never change. And those eternal truths are expressed in Proverbs under the term wisdom. And wisdom isn't just a knowledge of what the Bible says. It's not just information from the scriptures. It goes beyond that. I often say that wisdom isn't knowledge and knowledge isn't information. We live in the information age and people often think because they are exposed to so much information or can acquire uh, so much information and knowledge that somehow that makes them smarter, uh, that makes them wiser, but it doesn't. Wisdom, especially when we talk about biblical wisdom, uh, is something that goes far beyond just simple knowledge of facts and data and information. And spiritually, wisdom in the life of the believer is, is taking the spiritual knowledge that we've learned under the study of the Word of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, and it is the development of a skill set in terms of application. 
And that takes a long time to develop that. You don't get wisdom simply because you've applied doctrine, claimed a promise that you managed to pray and read your Bible today. It's the something that accumulates over time. It produces in our lives a work of, of, of artistic value. And that goes all the way back, we learn, from this passage to God's creation. And as I pointed out last time, the time before, one of the difficulties some people have, especially learned scholars and commentators, is trying to understand what happens poetically in Proverbs as the writer of Proverbs uses a figure of speech, a way of writing called personification, where he takes this abstract concept of wisdom and puts it into the guise of, a, of an individual, a person, uh, so that it puts, you know, a little bit of flesh and blood on this abstract concept so that it, it breathes a little bit and we can relate to it a little more than if it's just an abstract treatise on, on, on wisdom. It's not a dry theological text, but it's something that seems to uh, live a little a little more uh, in the text, and so when we look at wisdom as personified like this, or some that come along and say, "Well, this is is wisdom something secondary to God, something created by God." We'll look at some of those issues as we get into the text today, but it's really the expression of the omniscience of God. It is the outworking of all he, that He knows, and God's omniscience is is intuitive, it's direct. It, it, he always knew everything there is to know. He doesn't increase or decrease in his knowledge. He doesn't come to learn something the next day from what he did before. But in terms of expressing the, that, that re, the remarkable wisdom that God has, that we can imitate to a degree uh, because of our knowledge of God's word, that wonderful wisdom that, that God has is expressed in the creation through the beauty and the artistry, artistry and the aesthetics of God's creation. When we're at the beach and we watch the ocean, we observe a sunset, we go to the mountains, we see, see how the intricacies of, of God's creation in flora and fauna. We come to recognize that, that, that these things are not just functional. God just didn't create a functional universe, but it has beauty. It has artistry. And that is all bundled up in the biblical concept of wisdom. But wisdom comes from the essence of God, from his very attributes, and therefore it is related to uh, all three members of the Godhead, Father, Son, and, and Holy Spirit. Now, as we look at our lesson today, I'm going to entitle it Wisdom Brings Life because that's where this chapter drives us in our closing uh uh, exhortation or challenge in verses 32 through 36. But we'll look at this uh, whole section from thir- uh, 22 actually to the end of the chapter 36, not 31 as the slide says. And we're in the closing part of the opening introduction. The first nine chapters represent ten lessons from the father to the son, ostensibly from Solomon to his st- son. And we've gone through the ten lessons, and now there are these two closing uh, sections chapter 8 and chapter 9, which present the appeal of wisdom to all humanity and closing out with the fact that there is a choice. And the choice for each of us, as I've stated again and again, is 
Are we going to choose the path or the way of wisdom, the way of God, or are we going to choose the path or the way uh, of the fool? Now, a couple of things I wanted to pull together for us in terms of our understanding of wisdom. Uh, under five points of summary, tying this together with some New Testament scripture and principles. First of all, in terms of the value of wisdom, we should, too often, as I've said, wisdom is not valued by us, but there's one statement about wisdom in the New Testament which gives us an idea of how we ought to prioritize this. In Matthew 12:42, as Jesus is uttering a condemnation and judgment upon his generation, he said, the queen of the south, that is a reference to the queen of Sheba, uh, will rise up in, ju- in the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And indeed, a greater than Solomon is here. So in that one sentence, Jesus says, number one, there's a pattern here, and we see it illustrated from the Queen of Sheba, is that she left her kingdom, she left everything, traveled, travel at that time was almost as uncomfortable as air travel today with TSA and going through scanners and everything else, but I'm being a little facetious. It was much worse, and yet she traveled for many weeks to get to uh, Jerusalem to learn of the wisdom of Solomon. How many people today are unwilling to get in their air-conditioned car and drive for 15, 20, 30 minutes to hear the wisdom of Solomon? Uh, our priorities are all askew. But something greater is here than this wisdom that we have of Solomon in the Old Testament is that we have the Lord Jesus Christ who is the uh, incarnation of the wisdom of God. And we have the teaching of the New Testament and people do not want to come and hear that. They're too busy with whatever the details of life are. They're too distracted. They're too consumed by uh, pleasure and by work and by pursuing their hobbies and their likes and their dislikes or just resting up from a hard week. Too busy to prioritize the Word of God. Now, wisdom, as we see in the first point, wisdom is the outworking of the omniscience of God, as I stated already, such that what God performs is done on the basis of knowledge, his omniscience, but with skill and artistry. And again and again in this opening section of Proverbs, I've emphasized that, that what wisdom gives us is the ability to really live life well. To live life as God would have us to live it, not necessarily with all of the trappings of success because it's not based upon uh, how much we have materially, but it's based on what's in our soul so that whatever our external circumstances might be, the internal reality allows us to live life fully and joyfully, whatever else is going on around us. Second, we've seen that wisdom, therefore, is an eternal attribute of God. It's related to his knowledge, which is eternal, so that wisdom itself is eternal. It doesn't have a beginning. This is important to understand in terms of the personification that we find in this chapter. And thus we also see that this is part of the deity of Christ, because Jesus Christ is eternal God. Now, in the early church, this chapter in this section, 22 to 31, 
had a significant role to play, but only because they had a little problem with the way in which they interpreted Scripture. They, as we've studied in some on Tuesday night and Thursday night in the early church, by, especially by the early fourth century, they were too influenced by allegorical and spiritual interpretation. And so they looked at this, this praise of wisdom and they identified that with Christ. And so they, they tended to interpret everything within, uh, uh, Proverbs 8, 22 to 31, is talking about Jesus Christ. And so that wisdom here is seen not as a personification of the omniscience of God, but as a personification of Jesus Christ. And while there is an application there, that is not what the text is is saying. But this wisdom it expresses the, in the, the omniscience that is in every member of, God, uh, of the Godhead. In 1 Corinthians one twenty four, Paul says, But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. Now, they would take a passage like that and say, See, that identifies Christ in the Old I mean, wisdom in the Old Testament is Christ. Now, what he's saying is Christ in his, in the incarnation, was a revelation to us of God's wisdom, one of, one of many. But it's, it would be wrong to take that as saying, as identifying wisdom in the Old Testament as being just the personification of Jesus. But in Jesus, as in every member of the deity, are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And so Jesus Christ exhibits for us in his life wisdom. And we see it in many ways. Just look at the ways in which he deals with the confrontations with the Pharisees. He doesn't back down, but his responses are very sophisticated, and he uses a tremendous amount of skill in his wise responses to them. But that wisdom and knowledge that Paul describes in Colossians 2-3 becomes the foundation in his argument in Colossians 2 for the spiritual life. We cannot live our spiritual life apart from the knowledge and the expression of that knowledge and wisdom. Uh, it's impossible. We can't live our spiritual life on any other basis. That leads to the fourth point, is that wisdom summarizes the end result of the application of doctrine in the life of the believer. I want to just remind you of three passages, one in 1 Corinthians and two in Colossians. We studied these uh, in our two of these in our Colossians series. 1 Corinthians 2.6, Paul says, However, we speak wisdom among those who are mature. See, the Word of God expresses wisdom, and the teaching of the Word of God teaches wisdom. But it is not the wisdom of this age, nor the rulers of this age, who are coming to nothing. There is a contrast. You can be wise in the way of the world, or you can be wise in the way of God. Uh, wise in the way of the world may relate to academics. It re may relate to understanding your skill or profession. But what will transform your life and what will transform your skill or profession is when that is done within the framework of the wisdom of God's word. Colossians 3.16 takes this a step further, that wisdom is what the apostles taught. Wisdom is what is embedded in the revelation of the New Testament, but we are to let that wisdom richly dwell within us. Paul says in verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, 
with all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, so that the wisdom here in the structure of this verse becomes the foundation for our ability to minister to one another, teaching and administering ministering to one another in psalms, so that teaching and admonishing one another in the context isn't just through through speech, but it is through the psalms that we sing, the hymns that we sing uh, specifically in this context. And so that is part of the function of worship through psalms and hymns. We, by the words that we sing, the hymns that we sing, we are teaching and admonishing one another. But that comes out of wisdom. So it is necessary to grow in wisdom that we may enhance our worship and our uh, mutual uh, encouragement of one another. And then Colossians 4, verse 5, in his conclusion to that epistle to the Colossians, Paul says, Walk in wisdom, by means of wisdom, we would say, toward those who are outside, that is, those who are unbelievers, so that uh, we should use our time wisely. That's what he means by redeeming the time. We are to live our life on the basis of wisdom. And then one final point in relating wisdom to the New Testament, which would be a focal point, misspelled focal there, focal point in our prayer. Uh, Colossians 1.9 says, For this reason, since the day we heard it, do not cease to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all wisdom and spiritual understanding. This should be part of our daily prayer. We should be praying that God would fill us with wisdom and understanding of his word as we study it, and that this would manifest itself in the decisions we make and in our lives uh, each and every day. One particular area where this is important is in the promise in James 1.5, which is in the context of dealing with testing and dealing with uh, uh, adversity in life. If any of you lacks wisdom, this isn't uh, asking for guidance on a test tomorrow or taking a final. I took it that way when I was in high school facing chemistry and um, algebra finals. This is dealing with the tests of life. How do we handle the pressures in life and adversity? If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. So prayer, our prayers, our personal prayers for our own spiritual life should focus on praying that God would uh, develop wisdom within us from our study of his word. Okay, now let's look at our passage here. Proverbs 8.22 down through 31 presents the main part of this uh this section, it's an integral section dealing with the value of wisdom, answering the question, why should we really pay attention to wisdom? Why is, should this be such a priority? And that is because wisdom is part of the very makeup of God himself, and if God, if wisdom was an integral part of God's creative activity, then wisdom should be a part of our day-to-day life creating in whatever realm of life we might be through our uh, work, through our labor, through our uh, uh, roles as husbands and wives and parents 
uh, children, students, whatever it may be, if wisdom was integral to God's creation of the world, even more so his wisdom should be integral to our life in everything that we do. So verses 22 to 31 are answering that question of why is this valuable. We can break this section down into two stanzas. Verses 22 through 26 focus on the eternal nature of wisdom as part of the eternal attributes of God. And then verses 27 to 31 focus on wisdom as being integral to God's creating and sustaining the universe. And then when we come to the conclusion in verses 32 to 36, we're challenged to pay attention to this and to implement wisdom in our life, for that is the path of blessing, verse 34, and it is the path of life, verses 35 and 36. That to refuse wisdom is to choose death and unhappiness in in life. So in verses 22 through 26, the focus here is very simple. It is on wisdom as that which is eternal. It is part of the eternal attributes of God, even though there are some translations that look at this and overstate the personification as if uh, wisdom is created by God, wisdom is secondary to God, wisdom is almost an autonomous being separate from God. We know that this is not the case. He, the, the, the poet is expressing this in a way to, to just make this more vivid that wisdom is a part of who God is and everything that God uh, does. And so in these uh, first five verses here, 22 uh, through 26, the emphasis is on wisdom as that which is eternal. Verse 22, as translated in the King James Version, the New King James Version, is a good translation. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way, uh, before his works of old. The word translated possessed is the Hebrew word kana, which is used a number of times in, uh, in Proverbs. It's used uh, in the sense of acquisition of something. Uh, uh, Proverbs 1, 5, 4, 5, and uh, 7, uh, Proverbs 16, 16, Proverbs 17, 16, Proverbs 18, 15. I'm going through this fast. It's used seven or eight times, so it's significant. Uh, it has that sense of acquisition, not something separate. Um, and so it has the idea of possessing something, getting something, having something that's part of someone. And so the best nuance of it is the idea that the Lord possessed me. Now here there's a, a shift in terms of representing wisdom in one way in the first 21 verses, and now it's expressing the wisdom as that which is part of the attribute of God. The Lord possessed me. In other words, I was part of what uh, made up the essence, the attributes of God was wisdom. So wisdom is the expression of God's omniscience, his knowledge. Uh, he possessed wisdom at, notice, at the beginning of his way. And when we look at the term at the beginning, this is a term that could be first in priority, but it is first in uh, order here, first in time, indicating that when God began his creation, 
he already possessed wisdom. And the emphasis that we'll see through here is really that before God did anything, before God uh, created anything in the universe, wisdom was already present. At that time, the only thing that existed uh, was God. God being eternal, infinite, he existed with, without bounds of uh, time in any way, so he is eternal, and as part of his nature, he was, he was wise, he had wisdom. So he, at the beginning of his way, now, the King, New King James translates it way, which is uh, a very good uh, translation because it emphasizes and ties together the fact that we've seen these synonyms, way and path, used throughout Proverbs uh, one through uh, one through nine, uh, challenging the the father, challenging the son to that his life is a cho- bunch of choices. He must choose the path of life or the path of death. He must choose the way of righteousness or the way of the wicked. He must choose God's way or man's way. Those are the only uh, two options. And so here he, uh, wisdom says, the Lord possessed me at the beginning of his way or his path would be another way to translate it. Some translations translate it works, but that misses the point of what Solomon has been teaching his son is that we need to choose the right path, and the path that God uh, has is the path of wisdom. And so that characterizes God's path and God's direction, and that this is before his works of old. Now, if you look at, at the text, you notice that in verse 23 in the second half, we read, from the beginning before there was ever an earth. You ought to circle those two terms and connect them because the writer uses the same Hebrew term in both places to emphasize uh, that prior to anything that God did, uh, wisdom was present. So verse 22 concludes, before his works of old, before the ancient works. Now, in verses 23 to 27, I'll just put them up here, you see various temporal prepositions before, uh, when, verse uh, uh, 24, when there were no depths I was brought forth, when there was no fountains abounding with water. Then verse 25, before the mountains were settled, before the hills I was brought forth. And then verses 26 and uh, 27, while as yet, uh, that's a complete shift in a preposition there, uh, even before, indicating even before he had made the heavens, the earth, the fields, or the dust. And then verse 27 uh, shifts to the next section. So, what we have here is these these prepositions indicating uh, time or temporal priority, and so it's a very simple message that that uh, uh, that wisdom has here, and that is before there was anything, there was wisdom, and of course before there was anything, there was God, and so the connection is made between God and wisdom. Just a couple of other things to note: he sa- wisdom says. I have been established from everlasting. And the word there in the Hebrew is ma'olam, which is a word from eternity past, basically. It indicates that, that before there were time even began, uh, from eternity past, uh, wisdom existed from the beginning. 
And that is defined here not as the beginning of the earth, but before there was a beginning. We lose in, in language. We lose the ability to even express concepts related to uh, a timeless environment in eternity past. And so the writer uses these different expressions to bring that about. Verse uh, twenty-four. Uh, Wisdom says, when there were no depths, remember when at the very beginning of Genesis 1, the Holy Spirit hovers over the depths of the sea. This is before there were even any depths. Uh, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water, remember in the early, early creation, Genesis chapter 2, we're told that the earth is watered uh, from these fountains. So before any of this, this is a description of the earliest stages of creation. And uh, before the mountains are settled, before their hills, uh, wisdom says, I was brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth or the fields or the primal dust of the world. So the point is simple. Through, these, through the compound use of these temporal clauses, Wisdom is saying, I was there before God made anything. His artistry, as expressed through those verbs of making and creation, that artistry that God exhibited was the, wis- the application of his knowledge in the sense of wisdom. And verse 26, concluding, while as yet he had not made anything, the earth, the fields, the dust, anything, it leaves nothing, uh, leaves nothing out. And then we come to the second development in his thinking in verse 20, 27. And this is where we see that wisdom not only preexisted everything, was part of the very attributes of God, but wisdom was integral. It was a vital, necessary element in the work of God. The implication of that is if this is the vital to God's creation, then how much more Vital and necessary it is to whatever area of labor we're involved in, whatever whatever area of work that we find ourselves a part of, whatever responsibilities we have, if God used wisdom to create the universe, then it's incumbent upon us to use his wisdom in whatever area of responsibility we have. And so in verse 27 we read, When he prepared the heavens... I was there. See that emphasis on the presence, the necessity there as developed from this first thought. When he drew a circle on the face of the deep, again we have the word deep mentioned in verse 27, verse 28. It was already mentioned uh, earlier back, uh, back in verse 24. So these vocabulary words connect and tie everything together as a unified uh, context. Uh, when he established the clouds above. When he, and each of these phrases uh, begin with the same uh, preposition in the Hebrew, expressing five different uh, concepts. Uh, uh, when or before, uh, when he prepared the heavens, when he drew a circle on the face of the earth, when he established the clouds, when he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he's assigned to the sea its limit. All of these things are, are stated there uh, for us. There's... Uh, Six of these, I said five, I misspoke. There are six of these statements related to God's creation. So at the time that God is creating, wisdom is present. 
verse 28, when he established uh, the clouds above, while he strengthened the fountains of the deep, when he assigned to the sea its limits. See, these are all things that were accomplished in those six days of restoration, recreation in uh, Genesis chapter 1, verses 2 and following. When he assigned to the sea its limits so that the waters would not transgress his command, when he marked out the foundations of the earth, and then having listed all of those temporal statements, he draws a conclusion in verse 30, then I was beside him as a master craftsman. Now, now this is simply poetic imagery. It's not saying that wisdom is something separate from God. It is simply expressing it that way to show that there was this integral partnership between God's creation and his wisdom. I was beside him as a master craftsman, and daily his delight, God delighted in what he was creating. He took pleasure in, in the artistry, just as, as we, when we create something, we work on something, we produce something, and it is, we feel like it is done well, we take delight in it. And so, uh, this is the, uh, artistic, uh, the, the poet's way of expressing this and driving the point home. Uh, verse 31, rejoicing in his inhabited world, and my delight was with the sons of men. And so in, in these verses, 22 to 31, we're challenged to make the wisdom of God part of our life because if it was necessary for God, how much more necessary it is for us. And then we come to the concluding challenge, verses 32 through 36. Now, therefore, now this concludes the whole chapter. Starting off at the very beginning, wisdom crying out in verse 1. Uh, doesn't wisdom cry out and understanding lift her voice, emphasizing the availability of wisdom to all, uh, universally reaching out to every human being? And as we studied there, Psalm 19, 1 and 2, Psalm and, and uh, Romans 1, 18 and following, that, that the heavens declare the glory of God and that, that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen uh, through his creation so that men are without excuse. This is the nonverbal revelation of God, and it is available to all. And so uh, that was the emphasis in the first 11, uh, 11 verses, and then verses 12 through 21 describe the uh, attributes of wisdom, especially the prima, primary attribute, the fear of the Lord, which we discussed the last time, and how this is necessary uh, for even rulers of the earth to acquire the wisdom of God that they may, uh, they may rule well, and yet we must seek wisdom diligently. It's available for all, but we must seek it diligently. Now we come to the conclusion. Wisdom cried out in verse 1, and now we're again, now children, my children, listen to me, for blessed are those who keep my ways." Blessing is mentioned in verse 32 and 34. This is more than happiness. It's more than joy. It's a sense of stability, tranquility, contentment, happiness uh, in life that is completely divorced from circumstances. Now, we can have great joy and happiness in addition based on joyful circumstances. And we may have sorrow as well when things are not well. But nevertheless, there's an inner core stability, happiness, and contentment that's always there. The Lord went through incredible testing in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
He went through suffering. He, he went through emotional distress, but yet he was always happy. He always had this kind of a, a eternal, infinite joy, contentment that was there, and this blessedness is there because of the presence of wisdom in the life of the believer. Uh, blessed is a man who listens to me, watching daily at my gate. See, this isn't something you just do once a week. It's not something you even do three times a week. It is a daily discipline in the life of the believer. You can't get wisdom by doing it occasionally, by studying the Word once or twice a week. This is a priority. It's something that we study every single day. Uh, we are to hear instruction and be wise and not to disdain it, not to treat it disrespectfully, not to treat it casually, not to treat it as if, oh, well, it'll be there tomorrow. Because one day it may not be there tomorrow. Blessed is the man, wisdom says in verse 34, who listens to me watching daily at my gates, waiting at the posts of my doors. The gates of a city were the place where, where the leaders, where the rulers met and made decisions. It's where the, the local court was, where cases were adjudicated. Uh, at the doors of the, the doorposts, the entry into the house stands for the influence of wisdom upon the life of the family within the home. And then the conclusion in verses 35 and 36, for whoever finds me finds life, says wisdom. Wisdom does not come through external circumstances. Wisdom comes through an internal a knowledge of God's word that is matured to the point of wisdom and skill at living. Whoever finds me finds life and obtains favor from the Lord. But he who sins, the contrast, the exhortation is contained by understanding this antithetical parallelism here. The one who sins against me, the one who disdains or shows a lack of respect for wisdom, the one who doesn't give it a priority, the one who only occasionally uh, exposes themselves to the teaching of the word, he who sins against me wrongs his own soul, and all those who hate me love death." Now, life and death here is not necessarily eternal life or eternal condemnation. That is certainly uh, an application or implication, but it has to do with daily living. Jesus said, I came not to steal and destroy like a thief, but to give life, that's eternal life, through faith alone and Christ alone, and to give it abundantly. God wants us as believers to have a rich, full life. A life that is not, uh, not based upon the highs and the lows of, of the experiences that we have, the circumstances that we face through the details of life, but one that is richly informed by the capacity that we develop through God's, through God's Word. And that cannot be developed haphazardly. It can't be developed just on occasion. It can't be developed uh, randomly. It has to be something we set ourselves to, something that we uh, seek diligently, as uh, the writer says in chapter 8, verse 17. And the one who ignores it reaps the reward of a death-like experience. But the one who absorbs it, the one who takes in the word, the one who grows spiritually is the one who has the rich, full life, a life of great meaning because it has eternal value. 
with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to be reminded of the value of knowing your word, living your word, and growing in wisdom and skill at using your word. That this is available to one and all. It's not dependent upon a seminary education. It's not dependent on a Bible college education. It's not dependent upon anything other than our own volition, our own decision to uh, be in Bible class, to study your word, to read the word, to be constantly focused upon our spiritual life and our spiritual growth, that this is more important than any other detail uh, within our life. And yet so often, Father, we find that the circumstances of life intrude, and that's the test, whether or not we're going to stay true to the priorities that, that we know we should have. Father, we also are mindful today that there may be some listening, some here who are not sure that they're, of their eternal destiny, may not be sure what will happen when they die. And so, Father, we pray that uh, this today they will have understood something about the gospel, the good news that Jesus Christ died for our sins. He paid that penalty that we might have eternal life. And that all that is necessary for us to have eternal life and know for sure that our eternal destiny is heaven is to believe that Jesus died for us, died in our place, died on the cross, paid the penalty for our sins, that we have forgiveness of sin, and that you have forgiven us and cleansed us so that we might have eternal life and eternal relationship with you such that we can now in this transformed person that we are as a new creature in Christ learn true wisdom and live a life of value and significance. Father, we pray that for any here unsure or uncertain that they might take this opportunity to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ alone. And Father, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.